Jamie said, and I'm talking to Miss Mrs. Sue Carol Morris Williams now. Uh, and this is January the 8th, 1993, and we're talking at our home in the Rock Arkansas. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with UALR history professor, Dr. John Kirk, about the life of Sue Cowan Williams, an African-American English teacher who sued the Little Rock School District for equal pay in 1942. Uh, we knew that we would not get in the same salary as white teachers. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, there was no salary scale. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the uh, white teachers were better paid. John Kirk and Sue Cowan-Williams on Arts and Letters. Um, in the late 1930s and early 1940s, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, began to lay the foundations for a legal attack on segregation. First led by Charles Hamilton Houston, then by his successor and protege, Thurgood Marshall, the NAACP pushed for a genuine enforcement of separate but equal treatment for African Americans. In 1896, Plessy v. Ferguson ruling for the Supreme Court permitted segregation, provided that separation of the races also meant equal treatment under the law. In many instances, this was clearly not the case. From the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick. And welcome to Arts and Letters, a program providing opportunities for the celebration of the arts and humanities. Today, we'll be redefining the color line as we talk to historian John Kirk about the life of Sue Cowan Williams, an English teacher and head of the department at Dunbar High School who sued the Little Rock School District for equal pay for African-American teachers in 1942. So I have thought about the suit when did, when did you get, first get the idea to file the suit? How, what were the origins of it? Well, um, the teachers, the minority group teachers, had been asking for equal salary for quite some time. But it was not a 100% effort. There were some teachers in this group who were afraid to take it too far. In this unique story, we'll hear the voice of Sue Cowan Williams from 1993. Kirk, then a young graduate student, talks with Williams about her early life in Eudora, Arkansas, and as a teacher, her decisions to sue the Little Rock School District, and the outcomes and aftermath of her lawsuit. And we'll hear excerpts from his lecture on teacher salary equalization lawsuits on arts and letters. John Kirk, professor, historian, welcome. Hello, how are you doing? So um, tell us how you came to talk to Sue Cowan-Williams. Well, I was here in Little Rock between uh, the summer of 1992 and the summer of 1993 working on my PhD thesis at the University of Newcastle upon Tyne in the UK. And I was visiting here um, to do oral history interviews with a number of people who were prominent in the civil rights movement in Arkansas. My thesis was on um, black activism in Little Rock, Arkansas from 1940 to 1970. How many folks had you spoken to before? I spoke to around 40 people in all, and this was probably around halfway through though. So maybe I'd spoken to 15 to 20 people before I'd spoken with her. How old was she? the time. I think in her 80s. That's right, a few years before she passed away. And um, with a lot of those interviews, the same is true. You know, I was speaking to those people who were active in the 40s, 50s and 60s who were getting on by then. And, you know, I think it's about 20, going on 25 years ago since I did the interviews now. And at least over half of them are no longer here with us anymore. And I think for a lot of them, it was the only or one of the only oral history interviews they did. So it turned out to be an important set of interviews because for some of them, it was the only time that their life history was captured. Set up preliminarily what her life was like. Her father was a principal. She went to private schools. Mm -hmm. 
for a while, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, she grew up in uh, southern Arkansas and Eudora, Arkansas, and both her parents were school teachers, so they knew the value of a good education, and they worked to get the best education for their daughter that they could in the time. Within the context of the segregated school system, of course, the school system were pervasively segregated at the time in the South, so they tried to find the best schools they possibly could for her. Father, stretch my hands to thee, Father. I want to talk to you today about the 1942 teacher salary suit um, that you took through. But first, could you probably give me some background information about yourself, a short biography, where you were born, how you came to Little Rock, uh, how you came to be a teacher in the school system, all the things leading up to 1942 to that salary suit? I was born in this state, uh, in a small town, Eudora, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. near the line of Louisiana. My mother and father were teachers, and it so happened that they gave me exposure outside of this small town. I was put in a private school in the fifth grade. Mm-hmm. I, I was in a school for little girls in the fifth and sixth grade uh, in Clinton, Mississippi. This school was sponsored by the Congregational Church. Mm-hmm. Ah, I Spelman College, maybe you've heard of Spelman in Atlanta, for a grammar school. I was there in the seventh and eighth grades. Mm-hmm. And at high school, I attended another congregational school, Tougaloo College in high school. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, did my graduate, before my graduate work, I did my college work at Talladega College, which was also sponsored by the Congregational Church. To no other help I know, no And uh, my graduate work was done at the University of Chicago. So it's quite a prestigious uh, educational career. You got to go to Spelman and the University of Chicago. Was, it, was that unusual at the time? Or? It was unusual. The schools in Arkansas were not accredited at that time. Mm-hmm. And my father saw to it that I attended accredited schools. So uh, I went to school outside of Arkansas. The So she went to private religious schools. She went to Spelman College in Atlanta, which is one of the top colleges for African-American women in the nation. And then she went to Talladega College in Alabama, where a lot of our Kansans went as well. It was another important regional seat of learning in the South. And then she, of course, after becoming chair of the English department at Dunbar High School, she uh, went to University of Chicago and took advanced classes there and made straight A's in them. What made you decide to go to Chicago? University of Chicago, mm-hmm. because it's a prestigious school. Mm-hmm. It's a long way away from home, though. Pardon? It's a long way away from home. Well, I had spent most of my life away from home. Yeah. In school. So it didn't matter so much that I was away from home, the school, because I had spent um, most of my school life away from here. Mm-hmm. And I decided to go to the University of Chicago because it is a prestigious institution. Mm-hmm. And I was very pleased to be admitted. So many people could not be admitted to the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, after this suit was filed, I wanted to prove that I was capable of being the test case. The NAACP hoped to demonstrate that the South could not, in practical terms, afford the costs involved in separate but equal treatment towards African Americans, and to thereby reveal the legal fallacy that underpinned the Jim Crow system. One important strand of this attack on the separate but equal doctrine was the campaign for the equalization of African American teachers' salaries with those of white teachers. I am on the battlefield. I am on the battlefield, I am on the battlefield, for my Lord, for my Lord, I am on the battlefield, I am on the battlefield, I am on the battlefield, for my you talk on the tapes a little bit about there were several suits going on concurrently. Yeah. The suits were part of the NAACP's strategy emerging out of the uh, mid-1930s when Charles Hamilton Houston took over as the legal counsel for the NAACP. And Thurgood Marshall, who eventually became the first African-American Supreme Court justice in 1967 when Lyndon Johnson appointed him, he really made his career on the back of these school cases. Thurgood Marshall's own mother was a school teacher, so he understood the plight of school teachers. And the idea of the teacher's salary suits was to try and enforce separate but equal. In 1896, the United States Supreme Court had said in Plessy versus Ferguson that separate facilities were permitted so long as they were of equal standard. So there was a, a notion that even though there was segregation, things were equal for African-Americans. And this clearly was not true in terms of teachers' salaries. Clearly, it could be shown that black teachers were being paid much less than white teachers for the same jobs in the same school district. So therefore, separate but equal didn't apply. And the NAACP thought that they could attack separate but equal and show that it was patently not being applied and thereby uh, force equalization through that kind of means. So this is before they developed the policy of uh, desegregation in Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, before that, they were following this policy of enforcing separate but equal. So this is part of the preliminary idea of the NAACP and the legal team. And Thurgood Marshall filed these uh, suits, and the first success he had was in his home state of Baltimore. And he won equal salary for teachers there. And he won a number of suits in that part of the Upper South, Border South, and then they started to really focus on the further south states. And uh, one of the earliest victories there was in Norfolk, Virginia, with the Melvin Alston case. And uh, they ruled for equalization of salaries there. And it was that that really the Little Rock teachers looked to and they saw that case and they thought, well, these kind of cases can be won in the south. So um, we'll get ready and we'll pursue that in Little Rock too. Listening to Arts and Letters. We'll be back in a moment. This is Arts and Letters. Let's rejoin our conversation with historian John Kirk as he talks about the life of Sue Cowan Williams. There were 320 white teachers in the Little Rock public school system. White elementary school teachers in Little Rock received an annual salary of $526, while African-American elementary school teachers received only $331. 
White high school teachers received an annual salary of $856, while African-American high school teachers received only $567. This was despite the fact that both white and African-American teachers did virtually the same work in the same public school system. The African-American teachers drew up a petition to e uh, for the equalization of salaries and presented it to the recently appointed Little Rock Superintendent of Schools, Russell T. Scobie. He passed the petition on to Little Rock School Board, which chose to table the matter indefinitely. In fact, over the summer, unequal pay rises administered by the school district actually increased the pay disparity between African-American and white teachers. Infuriated by this, the African-American teachers began to contribute to a fund for a salary equalization suit and retain local lawyers in preparation for the case. Oh, yes, I'm on the for my we paid for the suit and the NACP took it over. Who uh, paid for the suit in the first place? Who, who the paid? Teachers. The, 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 the teachers. The teachers. The Little Rock teachers. The Little Rock. On the State Teachers Association. The Little Rock teachers. They paid for it. How? Well, that's, if we if we were making two dollars, we'd leave fifty cents. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you paid a membership due to the teachers' association. Yes. And that went went into a general fund. Not all of the membership dues. Those who wanted to uh, participate in the case, mm -hmm. you know, would pay. It was a small amount, but the NAACP took it over. They were uh, teacher bulletins for African-American teachers across the South, and they'd been monitoring this case in Virginia, and they'd seen what had happened there. So they started to collect money together to fund a lawsuit. So they started, they initiated it, they started collecting money. They actually wrote to the people in Norfolk and said, how did you go about doing this? And the people in Norfolk put them in touch with the NAACP, and then they start that dialogue, and then they start to ask them, okay, so how do we do this? But they raise the money first and they get everything in place, but they don't take it to court until they get the NAACP involved because they've got the legal strategy and they're the legal team and they need their outside support and help and that kind of advice. So it's a kind of dual thing. They raise the money first, then they get the NAACP in. The teacher's salary equalization campaign was important in its impact on local African-American activism and the growth of the NAACP in the South. The suits were the first experience of many African-Americans in engaging in formal protest for racial change and they laid the groundwork for the founding of a number of NAACP Southern State Conference of Branches, which was also true in Arkansas. I wanted to prove that I was capable of being the test case. Mm -hmm. And the summer before we went to trial, uh, I went to the University of Chicago and took a course in methods in teaching English. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I felt that I was equipped uh, to serve as the test case when the trial came up. She kept repeating that it was a test case. What, what did she mean by that? Well, I think it was a test case in uh, Little Rock in that she knew that she was being the standard bearer for a case that would have important ramifications. And one of the important things about this case is that the Little Rock School District employed a merit rating system where they had this sheet which purported to demonstrate that black teachers were being paid less, not because they were black, but because of a whole bunch of other criteria, which is something that a lot of other districts use. And in this particular case, the courts outlawed these merit rating sheets. So that was one cornerstone of being able to pay disparate salaries to African-American white teachers that the courts threw out in this case. So it was, in some ways, a landmark case because they got rid of that layer of bureaucracy in the courts.
the NAACP don't take all of these cases, but it sees Little Rock as an important case, particularly with the merit rating sheet, so that they can tackle that issue. So the NAACP won't tackle every single case, but this case gives a particular thing that they can do to challenge, to knock out the merit rating system in other places as well, because they know then that that's indefensible in the court. So they pick Little Rock for that, but the teachers want them to come in and they're, you know, they're receptive to them. And they're the ones who are really straining for this because you know Thurgood Marshall comes in and initially he says, wait until you get your merit rating system for next year and you know, let's see how that works. And they say, no, we want to do it now. We're all unanimous, we're all in agreement, we're ready to go. We don't want to wait, we want to do it now. So it's an interesting example of how local people can push a national organization. It you know, wants to take its time and they're telling them, no, we don't want to wait, we want to go now. Finally, the state salary equalization campaign illustrates the importance of African-American women's activism in the early civil rights movement. African-American women teachers, who made up the vast majority of all black teachers at the time, found themselves at the forefront of the salary equalization campaign as plaintiffs. In Charleston, South Carolina, Viola Lewis Duval acted as plaintiff for local teachers in Dallas, Texas, the Alma Page, in Jackson, Mississippi, Gladys Noel Bates, in Jacksonville, Florida, Mary White Blocker. In Little Rock, Arkansas, the plaintiff for the teacher's salary suit was Sue Morris, or Sue Karen Williams, as she's now known, and there's a library in the Cal system named after her over at Dunbar High School today. So, <clears throat> there were several teachers who were able uh, to go forward with this. And after the faculty meeting, the general faculty meeting, citywide, uh, they would call for a meeting of the committee. Mm -hmm. And and that meant that those teachers who were interested in taking this to the eighth degree would stay and the others would leave. Mm -hmm. So at this uh, particular meeting, uh, a motion was made that we would file suit against the Little Rock School District. Uh, it so happened that the uh, person who made the motion was a schoolmate of mine, L.M. Christo, and uh, he was from Talladega, not college. Sorry, he was from where? Talladega College. Talladega where I okay. And the person who seconded it was also from Talladega College. It so happened that at that time, at Talladega, most of the teachers were white, congregational from the north. Uh, when I went to high school, I had, had had only one black teacher. In college, I had only one black teacher. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess uh, that gave me just a little different background. Right. Mm. So the congregational schools were mostly white teachers. also talk about with this is the importance of African-American women in the civil rights movement. A lot of these cases are fought by African-American women because women are disproportionately represented as school teachers. That's seen as being a woman's job, if you like. And so the disproportionate number of African-American women teachers in the schools means the disproportionate number of African-American women plaintiffs in these suits. And one of the things that these cases do is to demonstrate the role of African-American women and their importance in the civil rights movement, particularly building the foundations of the civil rights movement. The determination of the CTA to press ahead took Thurgood Marshall by surprise. Ignoring his advice to wait until they received their salary schedules for the 1942-1943 school year, an adamant CTA insisted that they were ready to go to court immediately since they were feared any delay might lead to a weakening of their members' resolve. The school authorities had got wind of the intention to file suit for equal salaries and the teachers were worried that their clauses were going to be inserted into their new contracts that would prevent them from taking legal action. Thank you.
Like many other southern states, teachers in Arkansas did not have tenure, and they were in instead appointed only on an annually renewable contract. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund agreed to lend its support. Marshall arrived in Little Rock in February 1942 to assist local attorneys. Marshall studied the qualifications of CTA members and drew up a shortlist of three possible candidates to head the lawsuit. The person eventually chosen was Sue Morris, head of the English department at Dunbar High and a local NAACP branch member. Some people said that when I <clears throat> uh, 
decided that I would be the test case, that I knew that I was going to get fired, which I did. And it was just one sentence that my contract would not be renewed for another year. That's all it was said. Nothing about the case. The contract would not be renewed. And the principal also was fine. And uh, when he got his mail at the uh, school, uh, he told me that I could come home and see if my mail had come. Asked her at the time, why did you do it when you knew you were going to get fired? And she said it was the right, it was the right thing to do. That's right. It was a, you know, a noble stand that she took. I mean, she knew, as did many of those teachers who were taking those stands, that they were very vulnerable and that most likely they would be fired as a result of that because the schools, although they were separate, segregated schools, whites controlled them. All-white state board of education controlled them. All-white school districts controlled them. All-white supervisory board over those schools controlled them. So whites controlled the pay, and that effectively stopped teachers from taking action. I didn't do no writing, but my name was signed. I didn't do no So it took a bold teacher who knew what the consequences would be, but knew that it was the right thing to do and we're going to take that stand anyway to lead these cases. So it took a great deal of courage and a great deal of sacrifice to take this stand. You're listening to Arts and Letters. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Arts and Letters. Let's rejoin our conversation with historian John Kirk as he talks about the life of Sue Cowan Williams. It was 19 months before the case eventually came to trial. When the hearing was finally held between September 28th and October 2nd, 1943, Marshall continued to take the line that inequality in teachers' salary violated Morris's 14th Amendment rights. He noted that the school district employed only white supervisors to visit African-American schools to observe teachers, to advise them of their work, and to assist them in improving their teaching methods. And they were the ones who reported their um, status back to the school district. Principal of Dunbar High, John H. Lewis, testified that in his, his opinion at the trial, Morris quote, ought to be a group one highly rated teacher. Indeed, this was Lewis's recommendation to principal of White Garland High School, Charles R. Hamilton, who was in charge of setting the salary rates for black teachers. Uh, one thing that, that came up, uh, they said that the black teachers did not have the same cultural background mm -hmm. as white teachers. This is one I wanted to uh John Walker gave me this. And uh, according to my extended study in private schools, uh, they couldn't question that. Mm -hmm. I was exposed to culture all the way through. Mm -hmm. Lewis held a master's degree from the University of Chicago, a divinity degree from Yale, and had done graduate work at the University of California. This was the principal of Dunbar High School. He was a former president of Morris Brown College in Atlanta, and he was a qualified expert on rating teachers. By contrast, Hamilton, the person actually charged with rating teachers at Dunbar High School from the white school, only held a bachelor's degree, 
and admitted to the court that he based his judgments on salary ratings on only three or four visits to Dunbar High every year. Superintendent Scobie maintained that Morris was a very poor teacher, although he conceded that his evaluation was based only on watching her teach for 10 minutes after the case had been filed. You knew you were going to be fired when you filed the suit? I thought it was just possible. So why did you go ahead anyway? Because I didn't care. Mm -hmm. Why not? Well, there was a time when something had to be done and I was... I thought I was able to do it. Despite gaining the early upper hand, Marshall's anxiety that the school district had hired, quote, top flight lawyers determined to fight this out proved well justified. The school district attorneys from Little Rock's Rose Law Firm hammered on the argument that their clients judged teachers not by the color of their skin, but rather on a transparent merit rating system. They then produced what Marshall referred to as their trump card, a merit rating sheet for 1941. Other southern school districts have drawn up similar merit rating sheets to justify an equal pay on what they claim to be objective criteria. As elsewhere, the merit rating sheet aimed to show that most African-American teachers in the Rock school system were, as Marshall put it, lousy. Um, next, they brought Annie Giffey to the stand, Giffey, a long-standing uh, teacher in the school district, who testified that, quote, regardless of college degrees and teaching experience, no white teacher in Little Rock is inferior to the best Negro teacher. I won't be silent Cause I found my voice I once was miserably compliant but now I happily rejoice Cause you can't hold me down You can't take away the joy that I found So do what you will, I'll still prevail You can't hold me down And it was just one sentence that my contract would not be renewed for another year that's all it was said nothing about the case your contract would not be renewed and the principal also was fine and uh, when he got his mail at the uh, school uh, he told me that I could come home and see if my mail had come that same day mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You were both fired on the same day, or your contracts weren't renewed on the same day. But we, John Lewis resigned. Didn't he? We were fired on the same day. His contract was not renewed. And mine, it was just a statement that my contract would not be renewed. And uh, no other statement, no reason was given. I know you thought that you would win. But you thought wrong. Cause I don't give in, oh, I've got the power to slay my enemies, I shall overcome all adversity, you can't hold me down, you can't take away the joy that I found, so do what you will. I'll still prevail You can't hold me You can't hold me You won't stop me, no You can't hold me down You can't hold me You can't hold me down While Trimble deliberated over his ruling, African-American educators in Little Rock found out that school officials were prepared to take the fight beyond the courtroom. Uh, Sue Morris was uh, had a contract not renewed, and also um, John Lewis, uh, the principal at Dunbar, and John Gibson, the head of the Catherine Teachers Association, uh, both left to go to Shorter College under pressure from the school administration officials. And I went to the superintendent's office, and he said he was sorry that 
it wasn't his decision. He was just sorry it happened. He, he was that the superintendent was. He was the superintendent. His name was Scobie, I think. Scobie, and you went into his office after you were after your contact wasn't renewed, and he said, "Nothing I can do." Nothing he can do. I won't be silent. Cause I found my voice. I once was miserably compliant. But now I happily rejoice. Cause you can't hold me down. You can't take away the joy that I found. So do what you will, I'll still prevail. She said after her contract wasn't renewed, she went to the superintendent and he said, there's nothing I can do. Do you think that was true? Probably, yeah. Um, you know, there isn't much the superintendent can do at the time. You know, they're given by the board and they're given by politicians and other people in the community. And it would be difficult not to let go of her given the stance that she'd taken. It would almost, I guess, be seen as tacit support if she kept her position. So I think white school officials felt that they had little choice but to let her go because of the lawsuit that she'd launched. She said, I didn't care, something had to be done. Well, that was a time when something had to be done, and I was, I thought I was able to do it, and I was ready. When Judge Trimble finally announced his verdict on January 5th, 1944, it was, as Marshall had suspected it would be, in favour of the school district. The suit is filed, then her contract is not renewed. Then she had to go, she went and tried to work in another school for about a year or two. And then she was working in a factory, I think, a munitions factory. That's right, yeah, she was working in a munitions factory in Jacksonville, of course, it was in the middle of the Second World War. So when the uh, war was over, that was, plant was closed. And then I went over to Arkansas Baptist College, which is two so there were employment in those areas and she worked for a while, I think at University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff as it is now and uh, AM&M College as it was then. Um, so yeah, she did other things at the time. And then during that time, the initial suit was lost. After the uh, case was lost in Trimble's court, then the lawyers, the NAACP, see we didn't have any money much, the NAACP went to appellate court. And it was tried by the District Court of the United States. That's right, yeah. The initial suit was lost in the courts, and that wasn't particularly surprising. You know, a lot of the local courts were dominated by the racial mores of the time, and the judges were steeped in that, and the juries were steeped in that, and all that kind of thing. So the NAACP knew that it was likely to lose these suits in the lower courts. It knew that all along. And there is, of course, a legal process, so they have to file these suits in the local courts first. But they knew that there wouldn't be a successful outcome there. And what they really looked to is to appeal these cases to the higher courts, where they knew there would be a more sympathetic hearing to their cause. However, Morris and her attorneys were successful in overturning Trimble's decision before the Eighth Circuit Appeals Court at St. Louis. One significant advantage that African Americans in Arkansas had in appealing lower court decisions was the fact that, through a quirk of political geography, Arkansas was the only southern state that belonged to the U.S. Eighth Circuit Federal Court District. The other states in the district were all from the North and Midwest. Judges sitting in the appeals court therefore tended to be less steeped in southern racial mores, and there was a greater likelihood of an impartial ruling. On June 19, 1945, the appeals court reversed Judge Trimble's ruling and sided with the teachers and ordered the Little Rock School District to pay African-American white teachers the same salary. And then, you, did you teach them until you went back to Dunbar? Yes. And how did you get back to Dunbar? What happened? Why did you make the move from Arkansas Baptist back to Dunbar? Well, uh, the principal of Dunbar, which is the only so-called black high school there, 
was a schoolmate of mine, and he asked for me every year. My credentials stayed in the file down there. Maybe down there now, I don't know. But he asked for me every year. And then once the suit was won, she was rehired at Dunbar. That's right. Later, she was uh, rehired at Dunbar High School. Although the uh, new principal, because one of the one of the things about this case, of course, is that Sue Ken Williams is not the only one to leave Dunbar as a result of this. That the principal goes as well, and the head of the Classroom Teachers Association to which she belongs also leaves because they're under pressure too. But yeah, other teachers lose their jobs because of the suit, and even the principal. Um, so there's a lot of collateral damage because of this. And uh, after nine years, in fact, the superintendent, I can't think of that superintendent's name now, I know he called me and said, have you learned your lesson? So she said when she came back, she talked to the superintendent and he said, have you learned your lesson? That's right. She was rehired, I think, about 10 years after she'd initially filed the suit. And the new principal of the school, Levi Christoph at the time, was a friend of hers and he'd gone to Talladega too and he wanted to hire her back. And he kept petitioning the school board to hire her back, but they said, you know, she filed this suit, she shouldn't have done it, so we don't want her in the school system. So eventually they relent, but they force her to apologize to them first for filing the suit in the first place. Uh, before they'll take her back. So they really not only have let her go, but want her to kind of be uh, repentant. And Mr. Crystal was very upset over that question. He said he didn't know how I was going to answer. And I said, yes. What was the lesson? Which I didn't want to say. The lesson was not to, not to buy suits and not, you know, don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. You have learned your lesson. I know you thought that you would win. But you thought wrong. Cause I don't give in. Oh, I've got the power to slay my enemies. I shall overcome all adversity. She said, I said, okay. But I didn't, yes, I did, but I didn't want to say it. That's right. And, you know, she had to do it. If she wanted to go back to her vocation as a teacher, and that's what she was passionate about, that's what she wanted to do, that was her career. And in order to do that, she had to make those sacrifices. And, you know, that's not uncommon for African Americans at the time. In some ways, to get along and to do the things they needed to do, they had to accommodate to what was asked of them. And, you know, to get back into the schools, to contribute, to teaching African-American children and their educational excellence. She had to swallow her pride to be able to resume that role. So in some ways, that was another sacrifice she had to make. She had to sort of uh, be repentant and back down from what she'd done in order to get her job back to continue doing what she loved. You can't hold me down. You can't take away the joy that I found. So do what you will, I'll still prevail. You can't hold me, you can't hold me. You won't stop me, no. You can't hold me down, you can't hold me. You can't hold me down. And she made no money on this either, this lawsuit provided no recompense. No, no recompense. I mean, she did it just because it was the right thing to do, as she said herself. Um, she may have got a little rise in salary because of the results of her lawsuit and that, you know, the salary has been more But equal. the same salary all the other teachers had. But the same salary all the other teachers had. Yeah, she didn't directly. No back pay. No That's back pay. The teacher's salary equalization campaign warrants attention for several reasons. First, the suits were strikingly successful in achieving their immediate gain aim of getting better pay for African-American teachers. Between 1939 and 1947, the NAACP won 27 of the 31 teachers' salary equalization cases it fought in the South. African-American teachers' salaries steadily rose from 50% of white teachers' salaries in 1930 to 65% in 1945 to 85% in 1950. Moreover, in a number of states, the suits had a knock-on effect of convincing whites to pursue the principle of educational equality even more widely. So what happened to Sue Morris afterwards? Uh, Sue Morris married Little Rock pastor Reverend Booker T. Williams in 1946. 
after which she went by the name of Sue Karen Williams. When Horace Mann High School was built and opened as a segregated high school in Little Rock in 1956, which involved staffing changes at Dunbar, Williams was promoted to her old position as chair of the English department. She held that position until she retired from the school in 1974. After her retirement from Dunbar, Williams taught at Arkansas Baptist College and worked part-time for Little Rock School District in the reading writing program. Well, since I've retired, I choose to do the things I want to do. Mm -hmm. As I tell people, I have paid my dues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you sure have. Mm -hmm. She died in 1994. In 1997, the 10th Library in the Central Arkansas Library System, which serves the Dunbar area, was dedicated as a library in her honor. Something's gotta give. Something's gotta give. Something's gotta give. Something's gotta give. Broadcast from the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, you've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. To check out past episodes, go to artsandlettersradio.org. Leave us a comment there and let us know what you thought about the program. Thank you to songwriters, musicians, and singers. Gavin Lenar. Lady Georgia Hudson. Tim Anthony. Cook. Listen good, because I don't want to say it twice. If you want this work, then you're going to have to pay the price. And John Sadiq. See the sun rising over the river. A special thank you to Mary Ellen Cubitt and William Wagner for the story editing advice. Thank you to Adam Simon of Simon Sound for helping to mix and master the program. Thank you to Sticky's Rock and Roll Chicken Shack for keeping music alive and well in Arkansas. Generous funding for Arts and Letters was provided by the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you to historian Dr. John Kirk for the archival tapes the stimulating conversation, the amazing lecture, and the insight on the life of one of Little Rock's unsung heroes, Sue Cowan Williams. For Arts and Letters, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick. Let's heed the words of Daisy Bates. Surely the world we live in is but the world that lives in us. Rising.